Hey there, it's Shannon Ballard. If you're new to Southern Mysteries and you like what you hear, you should know this is an independent show that's made possible by patrons supporting Southern Mysteries on Patreon. Patrons keep this show going. As a thanks for joining, you get to hear ad-free episodes, the Southern Mysteries archive of the first three seasons of the show, plus patron-exclusive episodes like the new Audacious podcast that focuses on some of the most scandalous true crime stories in American history. Thanks to my new patrons helping make this episode possible, Tracy from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and David, Rocky, and Ellen, who are listening and supporting from mysterious locations. Your support means so much, and I hope you enjoy catching up and listening to all the stories available to you as patrons. Now, for anyone listening who hasn't checked out the Southern Mysteries Patreon and you want to hear more content, you can learn more and sign up to join today at patreon.com slash Southern Mysteries. David Stringbean Aikman was one of the biggest stars on the Grand Ole Opry throughout the 1950s. An accomplished banjo player, he rose to national fame in the 60s and 70s thanks to his role on the country music and comedy variety show, Hee Haw. Stringbean was a singer-songwriter, musician, comedian, and semi-professional baseball player, who was respected and beloved by his country music peers and fans. In November 1973, the country music world was rocked by the news that Stringbean and his wife Estelle had been murdered at their cabin just outside Nashville, Tennessee. Their deaths changed Music City forever. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring the history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the murder of the Kentucky Wonder, String Bean Aikman. Nashville radio station WSM first signed on the air October 5th, 1925. Two months later, WSM launched a show called the Grand Ole Opry. It was their first show that gave country music fans the chance to experience a live studio broadcast. The Grand Ole Opry is America's longest-running radio show. The Opry has helped launch the career of hundreds of country music stars, and WSM Radio's decision to launch the Opry helped shape Nashville into the capital of the recording industry, Music City, USA. It became the city artists would come to in the hope of getting that once-in-a-career shot at playing on the Opry. David Stringbean Aitman got his first shot at playing the Opry in the 1940s. Known as the Kentucky Wonder, Stringbean was born in Jackson County, Kentucky in 1915. He came from a musical family. His father taught him to play banjo, and Stringbean built his first instrument at the age of seven with an old shoebox rigged up with some sewing thread he borrowed from his mom. The Aikmans, like most of their neighbors in their rural county, didn't have much. 
They lived a very simple life. Stringbean once told a friend his mother would give him rocks to throw at birds. If Stringbean got lucky with his aim and hit one, his family would have a big bowl of boiled fowl for dinner. When he was 12 years old, Stringbean traded some chickens for a brand new banjo and set about playing local barn dances with his family. But times were hard, and he wasn't able to make a living with his music. Streambean went to work for the Civilian Conservation Corps, a work relief program established for young unemployed men during the Great Depression. He built roads and planted trees, but never stopped playing his banjo. He was encouraged to enter a talent contest judged by singer-guitarist Asa Martin. Stringbean didn't win, but Martin was impressed by Stringbean's playing. He invited him to join his band. During a performance, Martin stumbled over David Aikman's name. He couldn't remember it, so he introduced this tall young man with a lanky frame as Stringbean, a reference to his stature. Stringbean was six foot five. David Aikman wasn't the biggest fan of the nickname at first, but he eventually embraced it, and it would become his trademark. During his time with Martin's band, Stringbean initially played banjo, but was pushed into singing and a bit of comedy when another performer bailed on the show. Stringbean's act was a hit, which led to his being part of a radio broadcast on Lexington, Kentucky's WLAP radio. He played on air with several groups throughout the 1930s, and Stringbean was on a mission. In the 30s, the trend in popular country music was to forget about the banjo, which is what made Stringbean's skills so popular. He was trying to keep the banjo alive. He had to maintain a careful balance between his performances on stage and in a radio studio alongside his success as a semi-pro baseball player. His baseball skills impressed the father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe. In the 1930s, jazz musicians like Louis Armstrong and Cab Calloway sponsored baseball teams backed by jazz musicians. It's believed Bill Monroe was the only country musician to follow their lead and sponsor baseball teams in the 40s. Bill Monroe was born in Kentucky and by 1939 had landed a regular spot on the Grand Ole Opry. By the mid-1940s, he established his group known as the Bluegrass Boys, which would set the standard for every bluegrass band for decades to come. The Bluegrass Boys toured the Southeast every week and booked shows around their standing Saturday night gig at the Opry. Monroe formed a baseball team to help fill the downtime for the band on the road. The Bluegrass Boys band had five members, so Monroe filled out the roster by hiring more country and bluegrass musicians who loved baseball. The team, called the Bluegrass All-Stars, featured many well-known artists of the day, including Bill Monroe, Clyde Moody, and Stringbean, who fellow players called the best on the field because he could play just about any position. Bill Monroe was impressed by Stringbean's baseball and musical talents, he invited Stringbean to become a member of his group, which meant instead of listening to the Grand Ole Opry, Stringbean was playing the Opry. 
1945, he decided it was time for something different, so String Bean left Monroe's group. That's also the year String Bean met and married Estelle Stanfill. String Bean loved music and loved making people laugh. In 1946, he teamed up with Grandpa Jones, a fellow comedian and banjo player. By the late 40s, String Bean was again a regular on the Grand Ole Opry, playing with Lou Childry, a fellow musical comedian. It was during these performances with Lou that String Bean permanently adopted his trademark costume, a nightshirt tucked into an extremely small pair of pants buckled around the knees, which made him look like a very tall man with very short legs. His lanky look with his constantly bewildered expression made him a very popular member of the live show. It was silly and simple, and it never failed to make people laugh. Streambean was greatly inspired by the banjo player and comic Dave Macon, who was one of the biggest stars to play the Opry. Macon mentored Stringbean and taught him the art of storytelling and comedic timing. By 1969, Stringbean was known as one of the best clawhammer banjo pickers of all time. He played banjo the old-timers way, and people loved that about him. He was invited to join the cast of the country comedy variety show, Hee Haw, alongside Grandpa Jones, which made Stringbean a national star. He was making a lot of money, but Stringbean and Estelle stuck to their roots. They liked a simple life. They had two indulgences. One was a color TV set, and the other was an annual purchase of a brand new Cadillac. Every January, they walked into their local Cadillac dealership to complete the paperwork for their new Cadillac that the Aikmans only used for business. Stringbean never learned to drive, so Estelle drove him everywhere in that fancy Cadillac. As the years passed and more money was coming in for Stringbean and Estelle, friends at the Opry noticed the couple carried wads of cash with them. Like many people of their generation who endured the Great Depression, they did lack trust in banks. Friends at the Opry joked with the Aikmans, asked them to be careful. Some joked about opening a bank account to hold all the money. But Streambean always brushed it off, told them not to worry. Even as rumors and jokes were spreading around Nashville that Streambean stashed all his money in the walls of his cabin just to avoid dealing with banks. Stringbean and Estelle were best friends with Grandpa Jones and his wife Ramona. So close that in the early 1950s, the couples teamed up to purchase property together near Ridgetop, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. There was a house and a cabin on the property. The Joneses lived in the house, and Stringbean and Estelle lived in the cozy three-room cabin off Baker Station Road. Grandpa Jones moved away in 1955, but the Aikmans remained on the property they loved, where they felt safe until the very end. On Saturday, November 10th, 1973, String Bean performed at the Grand Ole Opry 
as he had for decades. The next morning, Grandpa Jones drove to the Aikman's cabin to pick up Stringbean for a planned hunting trip to Virginia. He immediately knew something was wrong when he pulled onto the long driveway leading to the cabin and realized there was no smoke coming from the chimney. When he got closer to the cabin, he saw Estelle Aikman's body near the driveway. Estelle had been shot. Grandpa went into the cabin and found String Bean just inside the front door. His best friend was face down, covered in blood. He, too, had been shot. String Bean's banjo that he inherited from his mentor, Uncle Dave Macon, was just a few feet away on the cabin porch. Estelle and String Bean were 58 years old, two of the nicest people you'd ever meet. As word spread about the murders, Stringbean's friends and colleagues from the Opry and Hee Hall drove to the property at Ridgetop, and they were in shock as they spoke to the growing number of reporters at the scene. Fellow Opry star Roy Acuff arrived at Aitman's property later in the day. When a reporter asked him to comment on the murders, Acuff said what a lot of folks were thinking. Why would anyone want to harm String? He was such a gentle guy, always helping others. Money, I guess. That's why they did it. Acuff then asked a reporter to look at Streambean's little cabin, and he said he could have bought 10 farms that size with 10 mansions on them. But he preferred to fish, hunt, and sit in his rocking chair and look up at the mountains. Acuff and all of Nashville were shocked by the murders and at a loss as to who would have been able to kill such kind people. Investigators looked at the ransacked cabin and confirmed some items were missing. They believed the motive was robbery, and evidence pointed to multiple murderers because the bullets that killed the Aikmans came from three different calibers. It's also believed Stringbean had time to pull a gun from his car possibly noticed something was off at the cabin because a bullet hole was found at the back of the cabin that matched the caliber string bean owned, but none of the bullets from the killers. But that couldn't be confirmed because police were unable to find string bean's gun at the cabin or anywhere around the property. So much about the case baffled investigators. Despite learning from string bean and Estelle's friends, that they had a lot of money and little trust in banks, police found several bank books hidden in the cabin. Deposits from Streambean added up to just over half a million dollars. The mortician at the funeral home called police to report that when the bodies were brought in, he found $3,500 stitched into Streambean's overalls and $2,200 inside Estelle's bra. If the motive was robbery, how did the killers overlook more than $5,000 being held on Stringbean and Estelle? The murder of Stringbean changed the way things were done at the Opry and at the home of his fellow stars. There had been this trust and accessibility to artists, but that all changed with Stringbean's death and the fear that another star 
could be the killer's next target. Artists began locking their doors, hiring private security, and sleeping with a gun under their pillow. The Grand Ole Opry had hosted this popular bus tour of country stars' homes, but after the Aikmans were gunned down at their little cabin near Ridgetop, most of the stars asked that the location of their home no longer be advertised. As everyone who knew and loved Stringbean and Estelle Aikman tried to process their loss, investigators pieced together the timeline of the Aikman's final day, Saturday, November 10th. As they had for decades on that Saturday night, Estelle drove Stringbean into Nashville for his performance at the Grand Ole Opry. After the show, Estelle helped pack up Streambean's costume and his banjo in the back of the Cadillac and drove him home to their cabin. Based on the evidence found at the crime scene, investigators believe that when Streambean and Estelle drove up to the cabin driveway, they noticed something was off. Authorities believe that's why Streambean's priceless banjo was left on the porch. He must have put it down as he walked towards the door of the cabin so he could hold his drawn pistol for protection. It's likely Stringbean surprised one of the intruders, got off that single shot before the other intruder shot Stringbean at point-blank range. Estelle was shot in the back as she attempted to run. For weeks, investigators followed every possible lead to try to find the Aikman's killers. Someone mentioned that a woman who worked for Streambean's talent agency had talked a lot about Streambean's money. Investigators learned she had shared this with her husband, Charles Brown, who had connections to two men with a long criminal history, his brother, Doug Brown, and their cousin, John Brown. Police followed leads, but the Browns' cockiness and their big mouths helped investigators. They bragged about what they did to several co-workers, to friends and some family members, even after they were arrested and pleaded not guilty in court. Surveillance team had kept a close watch on the Browns until January 17, 1974 when news broke that three men had been arrested and faced charges connected to the murder of Stringbean and Estelle Aikman. 23-year-old John Brown and his cousin Doug Brown were charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Doug's brother, 31-year-old Charles Brown, was charged with receiving stolen money and property and charged as an accessory to murder. Now, charges against Charles Brown were dropped within a matter of days when he agreed to testify against Doug and John. All of the Browns lived in Greenbrier, just a few miles from Streambean's cabin. They were his neighbors. Through that surveillance and interviews with the suspects and their family and acquaintances, police learned Doug and John Brown had driven to the area near Streambean's cabin on the evening of November 10th. They parked their car on the main road, left the hood up to make it appear as though they had car trouble, then walked to Streambean's cabin and turned on the radio. They listened to Streambean play on the Opry and knew how much time they had to ransack the cabin 
find his money, and get away. They were inside that cabin for hours, looking for the cash they heard String Bean had hidden. When they came up empty, Doug and John Brown decided to wait around for the Aikmans to come home and get a jump on String Bean, force him to hand over his cash. The last song String Bean performed on the Opry was an old hymn called Lord, I'm Coming Home. He waved at the crowd and did his signature hat flip for the last time as he walked off the stage forever. When Estelle drove the Cadillac up to the cabin and String Bean noticed something was off, he grabbed his pistol, left that banjo on the porch, and went inside the cabin to confront the intruder. There was no way he could know there was more than one intruder. There was a struggle, and one of the Browns shot String Bean at point-blank range in the doorway of his cabin. Hearing the gunshot, Estelle jumped out of the Cadillac and tried to run away. One of the Browns ran after her, and as she begged for her life, he shot her in the back three times. During a search of the Browns' property after the Browns were arrested, police recovered $250 taken from the pocket of String Bean's overalls, along with some guns, Estelle's handbag, and a chainsaw. The Browns left the Aikman's Cadillac and used an old station wagon stream being kept on the property as their getaway car, which they later dumped. Investigators were dedicated to justice for the Aikmans, and the Browns kept helping them make their case because they wouldn't or couldn't stop talking. Doug Brown contacted a journalist named Larry Brinton at the Nashville Banner and over the course of an interview, confessed to murder and revealed where he had dumped a bag full of guns they took from String Bean's cabin. Brinton decided to hold on to that information, not call police, until he could search for the guns. He didn't want another reporter learning what he had learned and publishing his scoop. Brinton drove to the pond where Doug Brown said he ditched the guns in a bag and he exhumed that evidence, which gave him the credibility he needed to publish his story. Brinton had no idea that hours earlier, John Brown was sitting in an interrogation room and had confessed to his role in the murder and revealed to investigators where those guns had been dumped. The next day, police went to search the pond for the evidence Brinton had in the trunk of his car. Once his story was published, Brinton called police told them about Doug Brown's confession, and handed over the evidence bag. Months later, Doug Brown told police about another bag he and John dumped in another pond. There, investigators found the rotting vinyl bag, and when they opened it, they found $3,300 in uncashed checks, two recording tapes, some hee-haw scripts, string beans crushed straw hat, and one of the most damning pieces of evidence against the Browns, Streambean's costume that had made him a legend and now directly connected the Browns to the crime scene. That along with Streambean's gun that investigators recovered thanks to the Browns' big mouth and sharing who the gun belonged to before they sold it off, which provided another direct link 
connecting the Browns to the Aikman crime scene. When Doug and John Brown's trial began in Nashville on October 28, 1974, there was intense security at the Davidson County Courthouse. Metal detectors were installed at the entrance, and the sheriff's office called in additional officers to search everyone who entered the courthouse. The first witness to take the stand was Streambean's best friend, Grandpa Jones. He shared about Streambean's last performance at the Opry, their plans to go hunting in Virginia, and detailed the morning he found the bodies of Streambean and Estelle. Grandpa Jones's testimony was incredibly raw and incredibly emotional. Doug Brown must have seen the writing on the wall. After Grandpa's testimony, he shocked the court by pleading guilty to the charge of murder of Stringbean Aikman, but not Estelle. When John Brown was asked to enter a plea, he remained silent. John Brown's wife testified that John came home in the early morning hours of November 11, 1973, and he seemed very moody and distant. She explained she knew something bad had happened, but couldn't pinpoint what was going on. The next day, John told her he and Doug had robbed Stringbean the night before, and things went really wrong, and Stringbean and his wife were dead. John Brown said he couldn't remember being at Streambean's cabin because he was so high on drugs and alcohol. He claimed Doug told him what happened, and Doug must have shot the Aikmans. All the while, Doug claimed John shot the Aikmans. John and Doug Brown made separate confessions in interrogations, interviews with the media, and in their account of the events of November 10th, to friends, family, and co-workers. There was little doubt they were both involved. The question was and has always been, who was the trigger man? Because they both confessed to robbery and through direct evidence and eyewitness testimony of the men spotted near the crime the night the Aikmans were murdered, legally it didn't matter who fired the shots. Two people had been murdered during the commission of a robbery. The jury deliberated for three hours before returning a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder. The jury recommended a 99-year sentence for each count and asked the sentences be served concurrently. But the judge overseeing the trial ruled the terms would run consecutively. That meant the Browns were each sentenced to 198 years behind bars. Doug Brown appealed the conviction until 1982, when the Tennessee Court of Appeals upheld the trial judge's order, denying a new trial. Doug died of natural causes in 2003. Until his death, he maintained he was part of the robbery, but John Brown fired the shots that killed the Aikmans. John Brown is still alive, but he's not in prison. Brown was granted several parole hearings in the early 2000s and denied parole a few times until 2014. The Tennessee Parole Board voted to grant him parole because they believed Brown to be an example of rehabilitation. His fellow inmates and corrections officers said Brown was a positive influence behind bars. He spoke openly of his shame 
and the guilt for the crime he committed, does rehabilitation equal the right to be free from two life sentences? Ahead of Brown's 2014 parole hearing, there was a movement among many Opry stars and fans to protest the release of John Brown. That year, Country Music Hall of Famer Gene Shepard told the Tennessean, John Brown cold-bloodedly killed two friends. Why should he be turned loose? Fellow Country Music Hall of Famer Mac Wiseman said the parole board's decision was a great miscarriage of justice. A columnist at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram wrote a tribute to Stream Bean for the November 13, 1973 edition of the paper. He shared the following. Stream Bean Aitman was a good entertainer whose warmth and gentle humor were contagious. He wasn't the sort of man you could bear to hurt, even in print, let alone in the flesh. The officers investigating the brutal slaying of Stream Bean and his wife near Nashville speculate that the killers were acquainted with Aikman, well enough to know he carried large sums of money. I prefer to think the murderers didn't know String Bean at all. Otherwise, they couldn't have done what they did. But as investigators learned, the murderers and possibly conspirators who encouraged the robbery did know String Bean. To this day, there's still doubt as to the circumstances that led to Doug and John Brown ending up at String Bean's cabin on that tragic night in November 1973. They had heard plenty of rumors about String Bean's cash, but got away with very little cash that night. There was one big rumor about String Bean's murder that may have been true and leads to more questions than answers surrounding his death. Taylor Haygood, the author of String Bean, The Life and Murder of a Country Legend, spoke about the Browns in an interview for the birthplace of Country Music Museum. He explained there's still doubt and questions about everyone's role in the robbery and murders. Investigators were convinced Charles Brown was more involved in the crime, but they couldn't prove it before Charles made his deal to testify against Doug and John. Hagood points to Charles Brown's talent agency that may have been connected to Streambean and the confirmation that at some point the Browns and the Aikmans had dinner together, so they knew each other, and who knows what Streambean may have shared with them, not knowing it could come back to him as a threat in the future. Hagood also pointed to talk of a potential investment that could explain the rumor that was running rampant in the weeks before the Eggmans were murdered. A rumor that Stream Bean had $20,000 in cash hidden away somewhere in his cabin. Haygood explained there was a country music theme park cave in Kentucky that Stream Bean was offering to invest in. And Charles Brown was at a meeting when Stream Bean spoke about that investment he planned to make. But Charles Brown never had to answer questions about his knowledge of that money or String Bean's plans that he was suspected of sharing with David and John Brown because Charles Brown never faced trial. Over two decades after String Bean and Estelle were murdered, a discovery was made that lends credibility to the rumor about that cash. 
1996, the then owner of the Aikman's cabin was said to have noticed loose bricks in the chimney. So he started pulling them out. And that's when he discovered around $20,000 in cash hidden away. The cash had been there for so long, it was rotted and unusable. That could mean it was there the whole time John and Doug Brown were ransacking the cabin as they listened to String Bean play his last show at the Grand Ole Opry. You can't help but wish they had found it, made it away before the Opry ended that night. A legend like Stream Bean and his wife Estelle deserved a better ending than the Browns gave them. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. Before his death, Stream Bean and the cast of Hee Hall finished recording most of the upcoming season of the show. When the new season of Hee Hall premiered, Grandpa Jones addressed the loss of a friend who was so close, he was really a brother. One of Stream Bean's running bits on Hee Hall was as the scarecrow in the cornfield. The producers of the show left that scarecrow in the cornfield as a silent tribute to Stream Bean. Stream Bean Aitman may not be a household name anymore, but the country was shocked when news spread of his death in 1973. It was quickly overshadowed by news of the Watergate scandal that was breaking that year. His friends and family maintained that his legacy was one of a kind, a humble man who loved his simple life and loved making people laugh with his cheesy jokes. The Eggman family continues their work to keep the legend of the Kentucky Wonder alive. They hold an annual Stream Bean Memorial Bluegrass Festival in Tyner, Kentucky. You can find a link to learn more about that festival, along with links to all the sources for this episode, including Taylor Haygood's The Life and Murder of a Country Legend at southernmysteries.com. If you enjoy hearing about String Bean and all the stories that you've heard here on Southern Mysteries, I hope you will leave a review or rate the show where you're listening right now. There's a lot of shows out there when you do write and review this one. It helps kind of stir up the podcast algorithm and helps other people discover Southern Mysteries. So it's a great way to help the show. And keep in mind, Southern Mysteries exists because of the core support from our patrons who love these stories, want other people to hear about it, want the show to grow and get something in return too. So if you want to learn more about supporting the show on Patreon and have access to all these episodes that you can't hear anywhere else, you can check it out at patreon.com slash Southern Mysteries. And there's a link to the Patreon in the show notes where you're listening to. Thanks for checking it out. And thank you as always for listening to Southern Mysteries. Southern Mysteries.